it's a, it's a gift to have Father Bochanski back. Last year we had a full house. I think the, the rain is scaring some folks away. So we appreciate you guys coming out. All right. Well, again, thanks, thanks for coming. If this is the first time to Christ the King, welcome to Christ the King. My name is Father Andrew, the pastor here, and also the vocation director of the diocese. And like I mentioned, we are just really grateful to have Father Bochansky with us again from the Courage Apostolate. Father Bochansky is originally from the suburbs of Philadelphia and was ordained a priest of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia in 1999. He has held a number of different assignments uh, as uh, in different parishes and schools, spiritual director to seminarians, a religious community. Yeah, but in 2009, Father Bochansky was serving as a chaplain for the Philadelphia chapter of the Courage Apostolate. And then in 2015, he was appointed the Associate Director of Courage, which he moved to the Diocese of Bridgeport, where Courage is, is located, the main office. And in 2017, he became the Executive Director of Courage International, uh, continued to do it full-time, traveling around. Father Bochansky has, he's author of six books, five sets of audio lectures, and a number of different articles and chapters of books and all that fun stuff. But coolest thing, I think, is that here in this past December, this is like not a common thing, so it's really, really, really cool. Pope Francis awarded him the Cross Pro Ecclesiae Pontificiae. It's a medal given in recognition of sustained and exceptional service to the church. So this is a big deal uh, that he got this from the Holy Father. So I'd like to welcome up Father Bochansky. It's great to have friends that will flex for you. Thank you for that, that introduction. And thanks, everybody, for being here. You know, when I, when I talk on college campuses, the story that most often comes to mind from the Scripture is one that I hope is familiar to you, the story of the rich young man. Right? You remember this story, right? This guy comes to Jesus and he says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is, you know, pretty easygoing with him. He says, well, you know the commandments? Sure, keep the commandments. He said, right, but I, I've done that. Since I was a kid, I've always kept the commandments. But there's got to be something more for me. Like, what's my path to holiness? What does God want from me? And Jesus says to him, well, if you really want to know, if you want to be perfect, go, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And unfortunately, we know that the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story, he walks away. They say he walked away sad that day because he had many possessions, because he wasn't ready to accept that radical sacrifice that Jesus was inviting him to make. Now, here's the thing. The gospel never says that the guy stayed away. Right? And maybe we have room to think that maybe he went home and he thought about this invitation that kind of struck him as too much at first. And after a week or a month or several months or a year, he came back said, all right, Jesus, I'm ready to do it. I sold everything I have, gave it to the poor. I'm ready to be your disciple. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've prayed about it, the more it makes sense to me that that must be what happened. And personally, I think that this guy was not just, he didn't just come back to be a disciple, that after he gave everything he had to the poor, he came back to Jesus, 
But in fact, he ended up as an evangelist, as Mark, the evangelist, the writer of the second gospel. And the reason I think that is because when Mark tells this story, which I said Matthew and Luke also tell, right? Mark includes a line, and he does this a lot in his gospel. He includes a little line or a phrase or a sentence that the other synoptic gospels don't pick up on. But in this case, the line that Mark includes is so personal that it kind of had to come from an eyewitness. What Mark says when he tells this story is that at this point, when the, man, when the young man says to Jesus, like, what's my path to holiness? What am I supposed to do? That Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Matthew and Luke don't tell us that. But you can picture yourself in the place of the young man, right? And if that was Mark, like, that's why he has to include this detail, because he never would have forgotten what that looked like when Jesus looked him in the eye. Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Jesus, who made this man. Right? who knew him since he was in the womb, who knew everything about him, who knew everything about his strengths and his weaknesses, the things that were holding him back and the things that would set him free. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved what he saw when he looked at him. He saw the whole person, the real person, and he loved that person. And in, out of love, he challenged him. He had to know that what he was inviting him to was going to push him, it was going to be too much for him at first. But he also must have known what an effect giving him that challenge would have on him. And he gave it to him out of love, this radical invitation to follow the Lord as closely as possible. By, yes, making a heroic sacrifice, but ultimately that sacrifice setting him free to love the Lord with an undivided heart and to follow the Lord step by step. Why am I starting with this story? Well, because the work that I do and the topic of my talk tonight is the church's message about sexual morality in general and about same-sex attraction in particular. And what the church is asking people who are experiencing attraction to the same sex to, to hear and to accept is a radical invitation, right? A commitment to chastity, which for many of them will involve a commitment to a chaste single life. Right? I've been celibate as long as some of you have been alive. Right? I know it's not an easy life, but I've got community, I've got structure, I've got a plan, I've got training. A person who's going to live this life in the world, it's going to involve a lot of sacrifice. Right? But the reason that I can talk about this, the reason that the church talks about this radical invitation is because we believe it's coming from the same place, that Jesus, looking at each of us, loves us and knows us. He loves what he sees. He loves what he sees when he looks at you. And if he's asking you to do something that seems a little daunting, that seems like it's all sacrifice and no consolation, it's, it's coming from that place of love and knowledge. He knows what you need. He knows what it is that will set you free. And so we share this message of chastity because we believe that it's going to set people free to be them, their authentic selves and to love authentically. So we situate our, our discussion of this not in, in terms of like, you know, commandments and rules, 
but in terms of invitation and what the church calls a vocation, a calling from the Lord. In the Second Vatican Council, the church uh, wrote a very important document called The Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. How do we take those age-old truths about who we are as human beings and understand how we're supposed to live in today's society? And chapter 21 talks about vocation. The church knows that her message is in harmony with the most secret desires of the human heart when she champions the dignity of the human vocation, restoring hope to those who have already despaired of anything higher than their present lot. I mean, think of the people that you know on campus, in your circle of friends at home. You know, think of how many of them are really hopeful and how many of them seem to have lost hope. Right? And, and generally we lose hope when we, when we think there's nothing more than this for me. Right? And the world in which we live has been broken since the original sin. Right? The world in which we live has a lot of injustice and a lot of people taking advantage of each other. If, if this is all there is, then that's why people despair. Right? But when we think about the fact that God loves us and he calls us to something higher, than where we are right now, to something more than just this world, that's what gives us hope. That, that God does have a plan to fulfill every one of the desires that he puts into the human heart. In fact, the church says, apart from this message, apart from the message that we're called to something great, nothing's going to fill up our hearts. Nothing's going to satisfy us. So I want to extend to each of you a radical invitation. And I want to encourage each of you to go to the people that you love and extend that invitation to them as well, even if you can see it. It might be hard for them to hear it at first. We're going to talk about how to understand where the church is coming from and how to present that to other people in a way that's clear and compassionate, that comes from the heart, so that they can see God's face in you looking at them and loving them and extending this invitation to them. So it starts by understanding our identity. And how much of who we are comes from whose we are. That God makes us with a plan and a purpose. And that's what defines our identity and defines our dignity and, and our destiny. The truth is, this is from that same document from Vatican II, the truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. Jesus Christ fully reveals us to ourselves and makes our supreme calling clear. If we want to know who we are, we listen to Jesus. And we look at Jesus taking on our human nature and living a human life. He does that, yes, to save us by his death on the cross, but even more than that, to give us an example, to show us how it's done, to show us how good is the plan by which God has made us. (coughs) Always a plan that's going to lead to our fulfillment and our flourishing. But if we're going to understand God's plan for us, we have to get past where the world usually stops, which is with labels. The, the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith is one of the departments that works for the Pope uh, to, to help people understand the faith and to answer questions about what we believe. And in 1986, they wrote a very important letter on how the church should extend pastoral care to people who are living with this experience of same-sex attractions. One of the things they said that's so important is the human person made in the image and likeness of God can hardly be adequately described by a reductionist reference to his or her sexual orientation. Right? Labels kill dialogue. When we let other people label us 
when we uh, when we only see other people through the labels that they use, it kills our it kills the relationship before it begins. Labels are really tempting today because we live in a society that's radically connected and radically isolated at the same time. I mean, think about it. You have as much communication and computing power in your pocket or maybe on your wrist. It's like 10 times more than the astronauts had in the first trip to the moon, right? You pick up this phone and you can talk to anybody on the planet. You can get information about any topic you're interested in. But God help us if it ever rings, right? Nobody actually wants this to get a phone call, right? We text, we don't, we don't call. We use emojis, we don't use words, right? And, and our, 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 our relationships get more and more fragmented. Got 2,000 followers on Facebook or Instagram, but never really spend time with people in real life, right? We forget how to be friends. So in that context, labels are really attractive. You want to put a label on yourself and tell me that's all I need to know? That's awesome for me because I don't have to spend time with you. I don't have to get to know you. I don't have to listen to you talk about your messy life. I don't have to listen to you talk about the things that you're worried about. I certainly don't have to get vulnerable with you and tell you anything meaningful about myself. I check the box. I move on. Labels kill dialogue. So the first thing to understand about, you know, accompanying someone who's living with this experience of attractions and wanting to know, like, what's the church offering and, and what does God want from me is the importance of really getting to know the whole person. Pope Francis says, in life, God accompanies persons and we must accompany them starting from their situation. Take a person's story seriously. Take a person's desire seriously. Get them to talk about what they're looking for and whether they're finding it, right? And because if we listen to each other's stories, then we can help each other to understand how our story fits into the bigger story that God is writing for our lives. And we can understand how this part of the story, something that's very important and very profound like sexual attraction, fits into that bigger story. Right? But if we just look at somebody through a label, then we miss the whole point. Every person has the same fundamental identity, to be a creature and by grace a child of God and heir to eternal life. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, of all visible creatures, only human beings are able to know and love their creator. We're the only creatures on earth that God willed for our own sake. And we alone are called to share by knowledge and love in God's own life. This is the source of our dignity, and it's, the, it's where we're heading. It's our destiny to be in relationship with God. We're made for that. And the, the scripture describes it so beautifully. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. So what does it mean to be in the image of God? It means that we're persons. A person is a being that exists that is aware of its own existence, can be reflective about who he or she is, and can communicate its existence to other, other persons. To be created in the image of God means we're made for relationship. And this is a unique privilege that God gives to us. I know your dogs and cats love you very much, right? But they're not staying up waiting for you to get home to have a deep, meaningful conversation, right? They're not losing sleep about where their life's going to be in five years, right? They're not, self, they're not persons. This is our privilege. We're made for relationship. And not only that, we're made after the likeness of God, which means our relationships are meant to be like the relationships among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which are always a total, sincere gift of self. And God, so total, so infinite, that they only have one being. 
And we can't get that total because we're finite and limited. But we're called to make a gift of ourselves. We're made for relationships in which we give ourselves away. And that's why it's so important to our understanding of ourselves and our identity to notice that it's in the same breath, in the very same sentence that the sacred scripture tells us about our sexuality. You know, starting from the fact that we have bodies, that our bodies are specific to our sex, either male or female, that our bodies are different, that our bodies have parts that are made to fit together with one another so that we can make a gift with our bodies, that we're different in our spirit, in the way we, we think and express ourselves, right? that those differences make a relationship possible. And everything about that relationship, everything about the desire that leads up to it and the feelings that we get from it and the things that we do to express it in an intimate way, they're all tied in with this fact that we're made for relationships in which we give ourselves away. And our sexual identity and our sexuality is a gift that God gives to us so that we can make that gift. It's a gift that God gives to us on purpose, with a plan. The Catechism says man and woman have been created, which is to say willed by God. Being man or being woman is a reality which is good and willed by God. We are not accidents. If you are a man, you've been male since the moment you were conceived. If you are a woman, you've been female since the moment you were conceived. When God breathed a soul into the body that your parents created, that soul gave your body a shape and a form, and you, you existed as you, including your masculinity or your femininity, including your sexual identity. It's the, one of the first gifts that God gave to you as he gave you your life. And everything about his plan for you is going to be shaped by that. It's going to be shaped by your sexual identity as a man or as a woman. So that we have to make a response to that. Everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his or her sexual identity. And the idea that our sexual identity is arbitrary, that we might just be kind of spirits in the wrong body, that you know something might be wrong about that, and so that we should change our bodies to, to match some other uh, image of, of who we think we are, right? That's to encourage someone to do that is not going to lead them to understand themselves or to be able to make a gift of themselves the way God would like them to. It's not going to lead to our fulfillment. Physical, moral, and spiritual differences exist between men and women. You've noticed this, I'm sure, right? And those are for a good purpose. They are oriented toward the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. And those differences are not just different. They're complementary. means they fit together. They correspond to one another. And God creates us with hearts that notice this difference and say, wait, she's got something that I need. I want to be close to her. And I've got things that she needs. I want to give of myself to her. That attraction that God puts between the sexes is part of his plan because he makes us for each other. Man and woman are made for each other. God created them to be a communion of persons. They can help one another because they're equal as persons and complementary as masculine and feminine. Different doesn't mean better or worse, higher or lower, weaker or stronger. It just means different. But because we are different, we have stuff to give and stuff to receive. Because we are different, we, we realize I'm not self-sufficient. I need this other person, and I want to give to this other person. All right? Complementarity is meant to draw us out of ourselves and towards the other. It's a gift to the world. Since God created human beings, man and woman, their mutual love becomes an image 
of the absolute and unfailing love with which God loves us. We're meant to be a sign, especially married couples are meant to be a sign in the world of the way God loves us when he gives himself to us completely and he asks for a total gift in return. And it's a gift to the future. This love is good, very good in the creator's eyes. This love which God blesses is intended to be fruitful. God wants our love for each other to overflow, especially when two people are making a total gift of themselves. That gift includes their potential to be mother and father, their fertility, their their ability to to give the gift of life together. And then that love overflows. It's not just about them. Their love for each other makes another person. And God blesses this. This is his plan. By the way, how many people, if you were to take a random survey on campus, would think, if you were to ask them, do you think that the church thinks that sex is good, very good in the eyes of God? Most people say, no, they think it's weird. They think you shouldn't talk about it, right? Most people assume that the church's sexual morality was made, was made up by a bunch of grouchy old cardinals sitting around in a rainy day in the Vatican in a basement with no windows, and they miss their coffee and their breakfast, and they're having a bad day, and they've got 10,000 things to do, and they, they just say to each other, like, how can we make life difficult for people, right? But the church's teaching on sexuality and sexual morality comes from our, the fact that we, we see the plan and how good it is. We see what God has in mind for our bodies and our souls and our relationships. Is it challenging to follow it? Yeah, it can be. But if we see the beauty of it, then we'll be inspired. right? And so we reflect on the sacred scripture and on the teaching of the church, and we understand that sexual relations, sexual intimacy is made for a very particular context, right? for what we call conjugal union. So there are four characteristics of conjugal union. Another title for this slide could be, what is sex for? Right? There's one unique context in which sexual relations are good and holy. And that's when you, it's marked by complementarity. Man and woman are made for each other. Permanence and fidelity. Their mutual love is an image of the absolute and unfailing love with which God loves man. And procreativity. This love which God blesses is intended to be fruitful. Right? So what does this mean? A marriage between a man and a woman whose relations are open to the possibility of conceiving children. That's the unique context for which God has created sexual intimacy. In this context, we can make a total gift of self, one to the other, the two become one flesh, and their love for each other becomes a sign of God's love for us, and it's like God's love because it's life-giving. And anything that's missing one or more of these things, the church has to say is morally wrong. There's another word for that, evil, right? We, we don't use words like good and evil very much anymore, mostly because we've reduced good and evil to nice and mean, right? And lots of nice people do pretty evil things sometimes, right? But when we say that something is evil, it doesn't mean the whole person is evil or the person who desires it is an evil person. St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us people don't choose evil because they think it's evil. They, they do things that are wrong because they think that they're good. Right? And we have to help people to see the truth, help people to understand God's plan. But the church does have to make moral judgments on various things. Right? So adultery, for example, is serious moral evil because it takes permanence and fidelity out of the sexual relationship. Fornication, no permanence, no fidelity. You know what that is, right? Marriage, sex outside of marriage. Sometimes we euphemize it, right? I hear, I hear confessions, and guys will come in and say, I had premarital sex. And my question is always, well, when are you getting married? What? 
when are you getting married? You said you had premarital sex. No, Father, like, she's not even my girlfriend. Like, it's just something casual. Okay, so in what sense was it premarital then? Huh? So it's just plain old fornication. Okay, well, let's call it what it is. Like, let's not make it sound. Fornication is not a nice word because it's not a nice thing, right? But anyway, fornication is wrong because there's no permanence, no fidelity. Pornography, masturbation, none of these things apply to those things. Right? Contracepted sex. The church teaches that when, when people engage in sex and they, they do something with a chemical or a device or a technique that, that changes the way that, that their intimacy happens so that it can't uh, possibly be open to conception, that, that has a deep effect on their relationship with each other. We see that it's morally wrong. And the church's judgment on homosexual intimacy, physical intimacy between people of the same sex, is the same judgment for the same reasons, right? Because relationship between two people of the same sex lacks complementarity and lacks procreativity. It can't be part of God's plan for sexual intimacy. Now, we'll talk more about what is God's plan for someone who's trying to follow this, right? Where do we find intimacy? Where do we find consolation? Where do we find, you know, meaning in our lives? But, you know, the, the, the church's teaching is not discriminatory. Right? And it's not meant to be hurtful or harmful. It's simply saying when all these things are in place, then a sexual relationship helps people to live and love like God. Right? It becomes most obvious that their, their, their love is, is like God's love for us, that it's based on a total gift of self, that it's capable of creating new life. And you take any of those things out of the, the, the equation and you have problems. All right. You with me so far? So how do we understand, like, the question that you're going to get, maybe it's a question you're already asking, whether you're, whatever your orientation is. If I buy this, like, if I go with this, then what's my life going to be like? If I'm going to try and live this way, what, what, what can I expect to have in my life? Well, let's start with this last part here, procreativity, right? I've just been talking about tough things, so I put this cute face up so that you take a breath and ooh for a minute, right? There is a deep, deep need and desire in every one of us to be generative, to give life, right? And the church perceives this desire as God's plan for us, as one of the ways that God leads us to make that gift of self, right? And we see just in the nature of the human body and the nature of sexual relations, like we're made for this, we're made for parenthood. Pope John Paul wrote a really important letter in 1988 called Mulieris Dignitatem, on the, on the dignity and vocation of woman. I encourage all of you to read it, especially the men. You need to know how special the women are that God is putting in your life, right? And he, he, he talks about the vocation of woman uh, first and foremost in terms of motherhood. He says, motherhood as a human fact and phenomenon is fully explained on the basis of the truth about the person. Motherhood is linked to the personal structure of the woman and the personal dimension of the gift. What does he mean? He means that every woman, by virtue of being a woman, by virtue of having a woman's body, every woman could be a mother, all things being equal. Now, there are things that interfere with that in terms of fertility, etc. But every woman, by virtue of being a woman, could be a mother, the personal structure of the woman. And therefore, every woman, by virtue of being a woman, needs to be able to love like a mother loves, the personal dimension of the gift. 
God never gives a, a vocation without giving us the grace and the gifts that we need to fulfill it. So this means that every woman, by virtue of being a woman, has in her already the ability and the desire to love like a mother loves. Well, what does a mother's love look like? Well, think about the mother's role in conceiving and bearing a child, right? She has to be able to receive this gift of life, to recognize what it is that's within her body, right? To recognize that person as a person when that person is microscopically small and won't look like a, like a person that we're used to seeing for many months. She has to be able to recognize that person and give everything she has to protect that life and to nurture that life so that that person can grow and flourish. That's what a woman's love is supposed to look like, John Paul says. He says, this unique contact with a new human being developing within her gives rise to an attitude towards human beings, not only her own child, but every human being, which profoundly marks her personality. Because every woman is made for loving like this, women just have this, this by nature, this ability and this, this desire and this awareness to love like this. John Paul says, it is commonly thought that women are more capable than men of paying attention to another person and that motherhood develops this predisposition even more. Yeah, you can laugh. You, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, no kidding, John Paul, right? Like this is not his most insightful moment, right? We know that this is true. But it's true because God makes us for this. If you are a woman, there's a particularly maternal and therefore particularly feminine way of loving, and you're made for it, and you want to be fulfilled, you have to love like that. Likewise, there's a particularly male, masculine, fatherly way of loving. There's a document from the Holy See says, there's something sublime in the qualities roused in a man's heart by natural fatherhood, an altruistic spirit, the assumption of heavy responsibilities, a capacity for love, and a dedication enough to make any sacrifice, daily bearing of life's burdens and difficulties, prudent care for the future. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's all fine and self-serving, Father. Of course, it's going to make men sound pretty good and you know, so selfless and so altruistic, and I don't know any guys like that, some of you women are thinking. Well, that's because you know boys and you don't know men, right? But this is what a man is supposed to be. This is what it means to love like a man loves, namely to love like a father loves. How do we know that this is true? How do we separate this from toxic masculinity or, or male privilege or, or any you know, t thing you want, label you want to put on it? Well, look at the animal kingdom, right? Think of animals that live in herds or flocks, right? You can kill almost all the males, and as long as the females survive, and a couple of males survive, the herd will bounce back. If you kill almost all the females, and no matter how many males survive, the herd is going to fall apart in one generation. So even at the level of our animal nature, men, we're the ones that are made to die. Right? We are the expendable ones. Right? That's why males, you know, when they see an, a, an intruder coming or a threat, they go out to meet the threat. That's their job. That's our job. And, and you, then you put it into the spiritual realm, right? And you realize that a mother is made to love in a way that recognizes the needs internally of the people that is, are entrusted to her, recognizes them, and is able to give herself to nurture and, and protect them and, and from within. And a father's love is kind of outwardly directed. You know, a man kind of instinctively goes to protect the people that he loves from threats from outside, right? You look out for your friends. You look out for, your, for the people that you care about, right? That's what we're made for. 
And we're made for that whether or not we have children of our own. That same document from the Holy See says, all of this is equally true of spiritual paternity. Moreover, spiritual fatherhood not being confined to the natural order is even more responsible and heroic. Why? Because you're just doing it because that's what you're made to do. That's what, what you're called to do. You're not going to get a lot of physical consolations out of spiritual fatherhood or spiritual motherhood. Right? This is not, it's not, not exactly the same as having your own children, but it's not a consolation prize either. It's not a second best kind of love. In fact, it's the one kind of gift of self that every single one of us is called to make. Gay or straight, single or married, consecrated, ordained, young or old, every one of us is called to be either spiritual fathers or spiritual mothers. Every one of us is called to be generative. Every one of us wants to love passionately, wants to belong to someone, be dependable for someone, be connected to someone, right? And that's why the sexual drive is so strong in us, right? And it's why we have to recapture our appreciation of this spiritual fatherhood and motherhood as not a consolation prize, but a real, important, fierce, loyal kind of love. I was talking to a guy one time, we were Skyping, and um, some of you have heard this story before. He's a military officer. And, you know, he was really upset when, when he called me. And, you know, his, his best friend's wife was about to have a baby, and his sister was about to get married. And he was just about to turn 30, which is a bigger deal than you maybe think it is now. Um, and, you know, so he was just kind of distraught. And he said, you know, everybody's moving on with their life and, and not me. And I, I wish I could get married. I wish I could have a family. I, I don't think, I just don't feel attracted to women. Like, I don't know why or why not. And, and I don't know what my life is going to be. And he just was really upset. And I was trying to console him with all the things that I would normally say, and it wasn't working. So it was one of those moments where the Holy Spirit kind of taps you on the shoulder and says, if you'd like to shut up for a minute and try this, it might work, right? And so, you know, I, I, I shared with him what I could only see as an inspiration. I said, you know, we're going to talk again in a couple of weeks. Between now and then, I want you to keep a little list. Every time that an enlisted person on your base comes in and needs your help, right, because they're new on base and they don't know where anything is, or they got a new job and they don't know how to do it, or they're homesick, or they're having trouble with family, or a girlfriend or boyfriend at home, like, once you, you know, listen to them, help them, and then just keep a little list, bullet points. What happened? Don't worry about what I'm trying to prove. Just keep a list. He said, okay. So we, two weeks later, we get back on Skype. And he's beaming, right? So I knew the Holy Spirit was right. I should have assumed that, but I, now I knew. And so I kind of played it cool. How are things going? What's going on? I have to tell you about my list. I said, tell me about your list. He, so he starts reading me off all these encounters that he had. And then he made the connection before I had to say anything. He said, I never knew so many people depended on me. I said, right. And for them, you're a father figure. And you know now how good that feels. And I don't know if God's got someone to come and be the mother of your children. I don't know if a week or a month or five years from now, you're going to you know, see somebody who just blows you away and, and you realize that this is who you want to spend your life with. I can't tell you what's going to happen a week from now, let alone 10 years from now. But what I do know is right now, you are living your spiritual fatherhood. And right now, you know how good that feels. So don't let go of that just because 
the world tells you you have to have a certain, a certain future that's not open to you. Right? Don't let the one thing that you don't have take your eyes off of everything that you do have. Right? I think that is really a big part of how we help one another to see this radical invitation as something possible, as something meaningful. Right? The problem is these drives to be generative, to be passionate, they take over our minds and our hearts sometimes and make us a little crazy. And the thing is that we, we tend, as a result, to just see things through the lens of how strong is this feeling. And the world tells us that any real strong feeling is a sexual feeling, and you just got to go with it or you'll be miserable and unfulfilled. And the Catechism says strong feelings are not decisive for the morality or the holiness of persons. It's not enough just to say, I really, really want it. It must be good. Or, you know, you can't help but love who you love. You know, the heart wants what it wants. Right? It's like my very... My second favorite line in the whole Old Testament. It's from the story of the Exodus. Moses comes down the mountain and he encounters the golden calf. You remember this story, right? Comes down, he sees the golden calf, he has a little freak out. You know, he smashes the tablets, he scolds the people, he grinds up the calf, he sprinkles the dust on the water and makes the people drink. And then he goes to his brother Aaron, his older brother Aaron, who he left in charge of everything when he went up the mountain. And he goes to Aaron, he's like, Aaron, like, what the hell, man? You know, what's that, that's a paraphrase, right? That's not. <laughs> but this is a quote. Aaron says to Moses, the people gave me their gold, and I put it in the fire, and this calf came out. <laughs> and you think, really, Aaron? That's the best you can come up with. But then again, I hear confessions, right? Hey, Father, look, I was there, she was there, we had a couple of drinks, one thing led to another, and this calf came out. I mean, I don't know what to tell you, you know? <laughs> Strong feelings are not decisive for the morality or holiness of persons. We have to know what to do with our feelings, right? We have to, we have to remember that emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or perverted by the vices. And here we're talking, of course, about the virtue of chastity. Now... I realize, I mention chastity, and I lose half the room, right? Because you hear chastity, and you think loneliness, sacrifice, deprivation. How many of you have seen the movie Nacho Libre? Okay, so Jack Black plays a Franciscan friar who's also secretly at night a masked Mexican wrestler, right? I didn't write the story. I'm just telling you about it. And there's this scene where this Franciscan sister brings a bunch of boys to the monastery to kind of get a sense of, like, look around. And, and they're talking to Nacho about, like, how cool the, the wrestlers' lives are, right? And she's looking at him like, tell them it's cool to be a friar, you know? And he's, he gets the message, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, my life is good, really good. I wake up every morning at 5 a.m., make some soup. I love it best. I get to sleep in a bed all by myself for the rest of my life. It's fantastic. <laughs> right? And that's what we think about when we hear chastity. I get to sleep in a bed all by myself for the rest. Now, I've been celibate, as I say, longer than some of you have been alive. Um, sleeping in your own bed all by yourself is not a bad deal, right? Um, <laughs> but I get it, right? When the world tells us that you're really only fulfilled if you're, you know, maximizing your pleasure, then chastity is a tough sell. Because the world says, if you feel it, do it. As soon as you can with whoever you want, as often as you like. 
The world will tell you that the church says, if you feel it, be afraid of it. Never talk about it. Pretend it's not there. Use it for making babies if you have to, but otherwise ignore it. What chastity means is I feel it, and it's important to know that I feel it and really what I'm feeling. It's important to know where it comes from and where it's going, what it means and whether I should act on it. And the best way to understand that is not just to take it in isolation and say, well, is it strong? Then it must be good. But to bring it back into the big picture of who I am. How did God make me? What's my vocation? What's my human nature about? What's my body for? What is sex for? You know, should, can I act on this feeling and still be doing what God wants me to do? Right? So chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the person. Not just a strong feeling in isolation, but understanding how I feel and what I should do about what I feel in light of who I am, in light of the big picture of my total humanity. And therefore, it leads us to an inner unity, to peace, to freedom, to authenticity. Right? The choice is whether our desires are in charge of us or whether we're in charge of our desires. And you say, well, yeah, but chastity means that people can't have sex, and if people don't have sex, then they're going to be lonely for the rest of their life. Well, again, as a celibate man, it's my job, my privilege, really, to witness to you that a life without sex is not a life without love. I have plenty of love in my life. I love my family, and my family loves me. I love my friends, and my friends love me. I love my parishioners, and most of my parishioners love me most of the time. Right? But there's more than one kind of love. And different kinds of love are for different kinds of situations. C.S. Lewis has a cool book called The Four Loves. There was actually, you guys watched the Super Bowl, right? That uh, New York Life commercial. <laughs> How do you like that? An insurance company teaching the world about the four loves, right? I have to like embed that video in this slide somehow. But, you know, the four loves that they talked about, affection, that kind of spontaneous love that you have for family, for the people you grew up with, for little kids, for pets, for people who are in need. There's just something about them that kind of gets your attention and you make a gift of yourself in, in a small way. Charity, the divine love with which God loves us, which enables us to love God in return and to love the people that he loves just because he loves them, not because they're always very lovable. Passion or eros is the kind of love that we've been talking about, right? Passion is, eros is the love that, that makes a marriage possible. It's the love that convinces you that spending my whole life with one person is going to be worth it. Why? Because passion, eros, wants to give and receive a total gift. Passion, eros wants to possess the beloved and be possessed by the beloved. And the thing about total, giving a total gift, right? Total is one of those tricky words. It's like pregnant or dead. Either you are or you're not, right? You can't be kind of total. I mean, you can't be kind of dead. You can't be kind of total. So Eros wants to give the whole self and receive a gift of the whole self from the beloved. And as long as the beloved is a human person, then a total gift always means body and soul because that's what makes a person a person. We're human beings. We're a unity of body and soul. So Eros is always tending towards sexual union. Now, Eros doesn't get there in one leap, generally speaking. It's progressive, right? It starts with crushes and flirtation. And what's, the, what's before crushes? We were talking about this. Squishes? Is that, yeah, it starts with squishes and, and crushes and flirtation and romance and, and intimacy. And, you know, and then it, it progresses. But you have to know where those things are heading, right? 
and you can, if the person that you're starting to feel eros about can't be your spouse or isn't already your spouse, then it's not appropriate or even very useful to start down that road. Right? Instead, what we do is we, we make a sacrifice of those passionate feelings, and instead we pursue the forgotten love of friendship. As I say, we're radically connected, but really very isolated. You know, and friendship, again, is not a, not a consolation prize. You, know, you use that phrase sometimes, she put me in the friend zone, right? It's not second best. It's not something that you settle for. Friendship is its own fierce, loyal kind of love. Lewis describes it this way. He says, lovers stand face to face, absorbed in each other. Friends stand side by side, absorbed in the thing that they have in common with each other. Right? You you see somebody and you feel arrows towards them. It's like, I want her. I want to be with her. I want to give myself to her. You, You see somebody and you love them with friendship. It's, you see what I see. I thought I was the only one that got it. You get it the way that I do. This is awesome. Let's stick together and pursue this together. Right? So friendship is a real love. And when we say that the church is in, encouraging people whose eros is pointed towards people of the same sex who can't therefore be their spouse, when we say that the church is inviting them to pursue friendship, it's not letting them down or asking them to settle. Right? It's, it's offering them a chance for a real, true, authentic kind of love. Right? And it's a love that we have to pursue freely. And so I want to just mention a couple of things that come up a lot in the conversations that I have with people who are living with this experience of same-sex attraction. And these things are not unique to them, and I don't mean to stereotype them or imply that there's like a one-size-fits-all story, but these are just some things that I hear a lot, and it's important to be able to listen for them when we're talking to people that we care about. And there are going to be things that will appear in other people's lives as well, people who are attracted to the opposite sex. But these are just they're things that, in my experience, come up a lot. So you, we need to be prepared. So one is, you know, this reality that when we're small, like, we've got this need and desire for what psychologists call a healthy individuation, right? To grow into our own identity, to be an individual, to, to become who we are meant to be. Right? But although that's the process of becoming an individual, it doesn't happen individually, right? We need people around us to affirm and support us, to guide us, to let us know we're doing it right, that we're getting there, that we measure up, that we fit in. And you and I know very well how in many people's lives that affirmation, that support isn't there for many, many reasons. It's not anybody's fault, right? But it's just we have to be aware if the person that we're talking to you know, has deep questions like, do I measure up? Do I fit in? Where do I belong? Well, friendship means that we become a mirror to someone else, that we help them to see in themselves what we see in them, right? Call out what you see. Tell them where you see their, being, their, their strength, their goodness. Tell them where you're proud of them. Tell them why you want to be their friend, right? Don't be afraid to say those things. People want to know, like, no matter how old we get, like, we want to be able to go home again. We want to know that we're still connected. And a lot of the people that we will encounter who are experiencing same-sex attractions have also experienced rejection from their family, from their friend group when they're growing up, and they, they tell them about this, from, sometimes from their church. Sometimes that rejection is explicit. Sometimes it's perceived, but they feel disconnected, right? And, and you know, one of the, I find... 
one of the hardest things for a young person to do is to admit, I think even to themselves, let alone to somebody else, my parents aren't perfect. Like, we know that that's true objectively. It's really hard to say, right? We know, like, there's only one almost perfect family in the history of humanity, and they were only two-thirds immaculately conceived, right? Poor St. Joseph was just trying to catch up the whole time. The rest of us were raised by imperfect people doing the best that they could because they were raised by imperfect people doing the best that they could all the way back to the beginning. But when you're an infant, your parents are omnipotent as far as you know. And as we grow, even though we we can see there are some things that maybe we're missing, it's hard to say, well, he should have done this or she should have been that or they didn't give me what I needed. So what does a good-hearted person usually do? Internalize things. If he wasn't there for me, if she didn't understand me, if they didn't love me the way that I needed them to, there must be something wrong with me. So a really beautiful thing that you can do for a friend is give them a chance to just say that and not have to worry about, are they going to think that I'm disloyal? Are they going to think that I'm weird? Are they going to think I'm a bad son or a bad daughter? Just sympathize. I hear you. That must have been really difficult. And then tell them what you see. Like, you don't have to assume that you're unworthy of love. You don't have to assume that, 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 you know, you can't talk about what you want. You can't be yourself. I see you. I love you. I'm, I, I'm proud of who you are. You know, if they're, if they're missing that from other relationships, just tell them what you want them to see in themselves. Tell them what you see in them. You know, one thing in regard to this rejection that often happens, the church's teaching is very important and, and has an important um, distinction in it. While the church teaches that homosexual acts are moral because they lack complementarity and procreativity, the church distinguishes between engaging in homosexual acts and having a homosexual inclination. While the former is always objectively sinful, the latter is not. Simply having the tendency is not a sin. Consequently, the church does not teach that the experience of homosexual attraction is in itself sinful. Right? No one, absolutely no one, is to be excluded from the life of the church, from the possibility of being a disciple and a saint, from your friendship or your concern or your care, simply because that person experiences attractions to the same sex. Now, we each have to make good choices about what we do, right? And if a person is living a life that's opposed to what the church teaches about chastity, etc., well, they're responsible for those choices, and sometimes there are consequences about, you know, can they receive the sacraments? Can they be involved in ministry? But fundamentally, right, we do not consider it a sin in itself to feel a feeling. We do not consider a person a sinner simply because they're experiencing these attractions. And a person who is experiencing these attractions and striving to follow what the church is saying is every bit as entitled and, and welcome and able to participate in the life of the church as everybody else. Right? And we have to make that very clear in the way that we talk about this. Because too many people feel a lot of shame about the, this experience of attraction and assume that God and the church and us are going to exclude them or, or, or come down on them for this. We have to extend a welcome where people understand what the church says in this regard. If we're going to invite someone to a chaste way of life, we have to realize this is a journey, not a moment. Right? You don't just say, hey, here are the commandments, here's the catechism. When you figure this out, come back and see me. 
right? No. You say, hey, I know that it's, it's difficult to like, look at yourself and your relationships and your actions in a different way. It's difficult for me in different ways as well, right? So let's do this together. Let's walk this road together. And it's so important for us to create an atmosphere where people have others to support them. That's why the apostolate that I lead, which is called Courage, we meet regularly just to pray with one another, to talk about what's going on, to support one another. And you can do that in less formal ways as well, right? But give people, if you're inviting someone to hear and, and put into practice this, this, this call to chastity, help them out. Like, walk the road with them. Be ready to answer questions like, who's going to love me for me? Again, this is not unique to people who experience same-sex attraction, especially people who are involved in the hookup culture or who are, who are attached to pornography, right? The message that you pick up from being promiscuous or looking at porn a lot is if I'm going to be valued, if I'm going to be desirable, if people want to spend time with me, it's because I look a certain way, I talk and act a certain way, I'm sexually available. So if you're going to invite someone to a chaste way of life, they may, it may be a whole mindset shift, right? Like, well, if I'm not putting myself out there, then who's really going to love me? Again, this is where friendship comes in. Loyal, fierce, honest friendship where you can tell people, this is what's friend material about you. This is why I love you. This is why I'm not going anywhere. You have to be honest about how far is too far, right? The church says, don't play with fire. Young adults say, how much fire can I play with before I get too badly burned, right? You know, but not only that, but there's this, what I encounter a lot is this idea that you can have like the chaste gay boyfriend or the chaste gay girlfriend, right? Like we, we're going to be flirtatious and romantic and cuddle a bit and probably live together eventually. But don't worry, we know the theology of the body. We're not going to do anything, right? Well, yeah, but Eros is leading in that direction, right? So to be able to speak honestly about that it's a struggle sometimes to, you know, make that distinction between things that are affectionate and things that are intimate and sexual, right? But that if we're striving to live in authenticity and freedom, we're going to receive that as an invitation and not just as, you know, a demand for, that the church gives us to ruin our good time. You know, ultimately what we're talking about is becoming friends, Talking about our lives, talking about our relationships, talking about our identity, talking about our feelings within this context of friendship. People who see the same thing and are on the same road. Right? And, and friendship can be about stuff that's fairly trivial. Or it can be about things that are profound and sublime. Like pursuing holiness together. Pursuing friendship together. Pursuing friendship with Jesus together. Right? And so if we meet people where they are, we listen to their stories, we hear what they want, we help them to see the desires that are in your heart to love and be loved, to see and be seen, to be passionate, to be generative, to be dedicated, to, to be involved. Like those are good God-given desires and God has a plan for us to fulfill them. Right? We have to present this plan as something attainable, as something good. Otherwise, we're just the church that says no. Right? But when we meet somebody where they are and we, we offer to walk with them, we, sometimes we have to say that's not the way, but it's because there is a way that leads to our happiness. Sometimes we have to say no, but it's always to help people to say a bigger yes. But as I say, it starts with accompaniment. It starts with our willingness to be there for people. I just want to leave you with the image of the, the, the road to Emmaus. You remember this story, right? It's Easter Sunday afternoon. 
um, Jesus, Jesus encounters these two disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. One of them's name is Cleopas, right? And they're walking along, and they're very upset. And Jesus has a choice in how he's going to handle this, right? Jesus is omnipotent and omniscient, right? He's God. He could just, like, pop up in front of these guys and say, hey, you got it all wrong. I'm alive. Ta-da. Like, believe in me. Rejoice. Hallelujah. Right? He doesn't do that. What does he do? First, he walks along with them, right? And they're probably a little bit annoyed by the fact that he seems to be, like, slowing down and eavesdropping on them, right? But he spends enough time to see that they're upset. And what does he say? Hey, guys, you seem upset. What are you upset about? And they look at him, and Cleopas says, seriously, how do you not know why we're upset? He tries to blow him off. He's, like, not in the mood for this conversation. This is a paraphrase, but I think it's, you got put the emotion back into the story, right? So they're walking, and Jesus says, no, seriously, like, what's going on? And Cleopas says, how, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on this weekend? And Jesus says, well, tell me, like, Seriously, like what, what kind of things? What are you talking about? What's, what are you upset about? And Cleopas says, everything. Everything about Jesus of Nazareth. You know, we followed him here from Galilee. We left our home. We left our family. We left our business. We became his disciples. It's three years that we're with him now. And he's telling us that he's the son of man and the son of God and that he's got a plan and that he's working miracles. And, and we came here on Palm Sunday and everything was so amazing. And we thought, this is when he's going to do it. This is when he's going to finally reveal himself. And then Thursday comes along, and he has this long meal with us. And we thought, this is nice, but what's going on? And then they arrested him, and they put him on trial, and they tortured him, and they killed him. And now he's dead, and now we don't know what to do. And everything is falling apart, and everything is going wrong. And now we went to the tomb this morning, and his body he's not even there anymore and some of the women said that they think they saw angels but we don't know what to believe about that and that's why we're upset and what does Jesus say well he starts with something that I really only recommend if you are the omniscient son of God he says how can you have such little faith what does he mean I think you guys are forgetting some of the story What does he say next? Don't you remember when he told us this was going to happen? So Jesus identifies with them as a fellow disciple, right? Don't you remember when he told us? Like he predicted it. He was going to be arrested and going to be killed and he'd rise on the third day. He's told us this. Don't you remember? Like why don't you believe what he told you? Don't you remember when he told us about all those passages? He pointed out the places in the Psalms and in Isaiah, and in Jeremiah, and everywhere else in the, old, in the scriptures that referred to him. Don't you remember how he told, he told us this was going to happen? Do you guys want to go, like, let's, we got some time, like, you know, let's talk about this. And he just starts at the beginning, and he walks them through it, and he shows them all the places in the scripture that referred to him, and all the prophecies in the scripture that were fulfilled on Good Friday. And what do they say at the end of the road? Our hearts were burning within us as he opened the scripture to us and talked to us along the way. How does Jesus get through to them in the middle of their suffering? He walks with them. He asks them to tell them 
to tell him their story. He doesn't let their defensive reaction or their messy emotions turn him off or push him away. He sticks with it. He lets them tell their story with all the emotion and all the pain that it's got in it. He listens to their story. He takes it seriously. And then he tells them the rest of the story and helps them to see how their story fits into the bigger story that God is telling. It helps them to see the things that they were missing or forgetting about because they were focused on the one thing that seemed to go wrong instead of all the things that were going right. The one thing that they didn't have instead of everything that they did have. And he set their hearts on fire so they could recognize him and then become apostles of the resurrection. They ran back to Jerusalem. We've seen him. We saw the Lord. And he told us the whole story. The church's teaching in regard to sexual morality, in regard to same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships, is a big thing. It's a radical invitation. But it's an invitation that Jesus extends because he sees us and he knows us and he loves us. And he hears our story and he listens to the desires of our hearts and he helps us to see how they fit into his plan and how to find that road that we can walk with him. And if we want to be his disciples, and if we want to love other people the way that Jesus loves us, if we want to help our brothers and sisters who are living with this experience, we have to do the same thing. Meet them on the road that they're on. Listen to their stories. Look at them. See them. Love them. And on behalf of the Lord, extend this radical invitation, but also extend this offer to keep walking with them. Because when we walk with them, Christ walks with us. And he leads us along the road that leads to our happiness and our fulfillment. I'm really so very happy that you're here tonight because you know people that I will never meet. You're in conversations and situations that I won't be in, right? This is my full-time job, but, you know, I get to share this with you and, and hopefully give you some perspective and hopefully some tools and hopefully some encouragement to go out and, and share this teaching with other people. And that's how the message spreads, and that's how people understand what it is that God is inviting us to. So to make sure that you're equipped for that, we do have some time for for questions or comments. Let me hear what's on your mind. When we find ourselves in situations like I have family friends who are gay, they come over, how do you balance the line between affirming what's good in the relationship and knowing when to draw the line? And I know that it's like a prudential judgment. It's, you have to, based on circumstances, but like, when they come over for Thanksgiving, you know, you, you can kind of teeter between, like, I want to affirm them as persons, but at the same time, like, I don't want to, like, approve of what they're doing. And so there's this tension of how do we affirm what's good in the relationship without approving the relationship? Thank you. Yeah, I think, I think the key is to make, to make it about the, the, the actions or the decisions that a person makes and not a, about the person. Right? Like we have to be able not just to say but to demonstrate like we really love our family members, our loved ones, and we're glad that they have people in their lives that care about them, you know. And I mean, I think what it boils down to is like, you know, you're are they cousins or, or family members, you, you said, you know, yeah. Yeah. So if 
if they were introducing this person as like their best friend, like you'd be all about that, right? Make sure that they know that. Like treat the other person with respect. They're generally, unless your family members or loved ones are in the habit of hanging out with real idiots, like they're probably good people, right? Um, so get to know them, understand who they are, just as you would any other friend of a family member. And then when necessary, right, you know, to, to say to them, you know, there's, there, I don't think that, I mean, I, I'm glad that you have someone that you care about. I don't think that a romantic or sexual relationship with that person is going to get you where you want to go. So I'm not really going to encourage that or, or facilitate that. So, like, what comes up a lot, especially from parents, is, well, you know, my son wants to come home for Christmas and he wants to bring his, his partner with him. Like, what do I do? And I said, my advice is, well, you say to them, look, you're very welcome here. This is your home. And, and this person who means so much to you is also very welcome here. Um, where you sleep is up to you. Uh, if you would like free room and board, um, this is what I can offer you. You sleep in your room and he sleeps in the guest room, right? If you don't want to do that, I'm not going to make you feel bad about it. I'm not going to get angry at you. But you're growing up. You're making money. Like, the Best Western is about a mile down the road. Like, go. you can stay there if you want. You make your own arrangements. Come over in the morning. Spend the whole day with us. Stay through dessert. You know, stay. And then when it's time to leave, go. And we're not going to make you feel bad. We're not going to roll our eyes or, or, or make a scene. You're not going to be excluded because this is your choice. It's just a choice that I don't think is a good one, and so I'm not going to, like, help you, right? But it doesn't mean that we can't be respectful and, and loving towards one another, right? So I think there's a line that you can draw that says, I, I love you, I, I respect this person that, that you care about, um, and I'm going to treat you like human beings, I'm going to treat this person like a friend of a loved one, um, and there are certain things that I can't do, but this is what I can do, right? I think part of it, too, is like when there are little children in the family, right, then it's a bigger question, but if you're building this atmosphere of respect, then I think you can go to that person and say, look, I, you know I've, I try to respect this person who you care about. And, you know, I hope that you know how much I love you. I need to ask for respect in return. Like, my job is to raise your younger siblings or your little cousins in the faith, right? And the thing is, if you come over here and you're talking about this person being your husband or you're uh, physically affectionate or, or things like that, it's going to raise questions for these little guys that, honestly, they're not old enough to have a complete answer for just yet. So I'm asking you, can you please, like, not do or say things that would raise questions for them? Like, let them be innocent and, and not have to think about these things right now. Um, and someone will say yes or no, right? And they say, well, if you don't accept the whole package, then you're not accepting us. Well, I'm really sorry that you feel that way because it's not what I mean. That's not what I want, you know, you don't have to come. I mean, like, if you decide to stay away, like, I understand. I wish you wouldn't. Um, but if we can put it in terms of mutual respect, I think we get we go along, get a, get pretty far along that road, right? And but we have to be not just giving lip service to that, but really demonstrating by our attitude. Hey, this is this person is a good person, and thanks for bringing him around. He's a good person to get to know. I you know I wish you weren't sleeping with him, but you know like I still I'm still glad that you're here. You know I think we do that with people in other situations all the time. You know, make sure that if there are other situations in your family, though, you know somebody who's living with a girlfriend or boyfriend, like you're consistent. Otherwise, folks with same-sex attraction are going to feel discriminated against. Okay. That question brought up 
just in my own mind, like what would you say or what advice would you give for what is an age-appropriate age to talk to children about this? And if the questions are asked and are raised in children younger than you would want to have that conversation, how do you address it and how do you respond? You know, little kids in school-age setting, why does so-and-so have two moms? Just basic stuff like that. I, I mean, I don't want to put myself out as an expert. Like, I have 12 nieces and nephews, but I, I'm meant to be an uncle and not a dad in, like, that respect. So I defer to people with a different opinion on this from more experience than me. But, yeah, I, I think I think when kids are little, and you're right, they're going to pick this up on the news or whatever's on TV when they're around um, at school, things like that. I think what you, what you say to, to kids, like, at an age-appropriate level is, well, you know, we believe that God has a plan for families, right, and for the way that people love each other, right? And God's plan from, you know, for all, all our families is mommy and daddy that love each other and, and they live together and, and they have a family together. Um, and that's what God's plan is for us. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to always understand what God wants and sometimes what we, what we want seem, is different from what God wants. Like, you know, sometimes what you want is different from what I ask you to do, right? Like, that doesn't mean that I, I don't love you, but it means that, you know, I should tell you what I think is good for you to do. You know, so this person, aunt so-and-so, uncle so-and-so, you know, uh, you know, they're, I think they're, they're having a hard time understanding, you know, what God wants. And, and sometimes they think, well, you know, I can, you know, we can make a family with whoever we want. Um, and, you know, we try to understand where they're coming from. And we pray really hard that they'll understand what God wants. And we still love them because we're not, we don't get angry at people when they find it difficult to do what God wants. I think, I mean, that's, like I said, I'm not real experienced in talking to little guys about this, but I, is that, does that make sense, what I'm, what I'm saying? Yeah. By the way, like when you consider how young you should start talking to children about uh, sexual things and sexual morality, the average age at which a boy first sees pornography is somewhere between eight and a half and nine years old. Yeah. So, you know, I think... Um, you know, to keep that in mind with little kids, Matt Frad uh, speaks a lot about uh, the evils of pornography, and, and his advice is, you know, he said they said to their kids when they're five or six, you know, um, they talk about, you know, the parts of the body that are just for, you know, you privately, you know, bathing suit parts or whatever, you know, and they just say to their kids, like, you know, sometimes people are going to say things or do things or even show you things that make you feel weird or uncomfortable, and sometimes it's because, you know, you're going to see people without their bathing suits on, you know, and you'll kind of know that that's not right. And it's, I know it's going to feel weird, but if that ever happens, we want you to know. We want you to come and tell us. We will never, ever be angry with you if you come and tell us that you saw or heard or, or somebody did something like that. Um, we want you to come and tell us. We'll be so proud of you if you do that. And they just kind of reinforce that all the time. And, and you know, and he says it, it works. You know, when, when they see it from other kids, you know, phones or whatever, they've come and talked to them about it, and then they can talk about what they saw and, and what it's about and, you know, and take it from there. So just keep, tuck that away for the future. Um, so in my experience in college and high school, I've had a lot of friends who have come out 
Um, and it's just kind of a big statement on social media of I'm coming out, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, and that kind of becomes a part of their identity and language that people use when referring to them. What kind of language do you suggest us using or like how do you suggest us responding if people say like, I'm gay? So the couple questions there, I think. So one is, you know, the language that we use. So I, you may have noticed, I generally talk about a person who experiences same-sex attractions, right? Because I think that's the most fair way to do it. You put the person first, and acknowledge that this is a part of their experience, but different people experience it in different ways and at different ways at different times in their lives. So I don't want to assume that I know everything about a person, right? And, you know, to be honest about, like, labels like gay or LGBT or queer, like, many times in our culture, they take on additional things beyond that simple, like, data point that someone's attracted to the same sex, right? Generally, people use that when they want to identify with that community, and it means that they, you know, want, are looking for relationship in that way or advocating for, for rights or for that community or whatever. And so, like, to, to be honest with people and say, like, so what do you, what do you mean by that, right? Um, and if what they mean is, well, yeah, I'm experiencing these attractions, but I understand what the church's teaching is, I'm trying to live chastely, well, then there may be a better way to get that across to other people, right? But I think the bigger question, like, how do you respond when someone says, I'm gay, right? Um, I'll tell you how I try to respond, right? First of all, with gratitude, right? Thank you for telling me about that. And no matter how much they know you and they love you, like, it's always nerve-wracking to, like, bring that up to somebody who doesn't already know. So thank you for the trust that you put in me, sharing that with me. Um, I value that trust, and I don't want to betray it. Right? And I don't have a lot to say right now because, like, you know, you've been thinking about this for a long time, and I'm just finding out about it. So I want to just give it some thought and prayer before I respond. But what I would say is I know that this is an important thing about you. I don't think it's the only important thing about you. And really, if I'm honest, I don't think it's the most important thing about you most important thing about you is that you're created in the image and likeness of God, that you're a son or daughter of God who created you because he loves you and he gave you a body and a soul and he's got a plan for both of those things. He's calling you to holiness and he's calling you to virtue and, you know, and that's who you are. Like, that's how I'll always look at you. But I, I do want to know, like, how this fits into your story. So I'd like to hear the whole story. Like, you know, I want to talk about all sorts of stuff beyond this part of your story. Like, where do you come from and where are you going and, and who do you love and who loves you and what was it like in your family and who are your friends and what do you think about God? What do you think God thinks about you? And what are you afraid of and what are you excited about and what are you proud of and what do you struggle with and what do you think your future is going to be and, you know, how are you going to get there and what are you looking for? And I want to know who you are. And if we can talk about that story of who you are, then maybe we can understand how this part of the story fits into the whole story of your life and how your life fits into the big story that God's telling about all of us. So the too long didn't read version of that is, I love you. I believe God has a plan for your life. And I want to hear your story. I think that's how we ought to respond. Well, I know you've got lots of things to be busy about. I know this is late, and, and I appreciate you hanging in there. But thank you so much for being here. It's really a pleasure to talk to you tonight. Thank you.
Uh, Courage has a fantastic website, couragerc.org. Tons of great stuff, articles, talks, videos, um, lots of great stuff. And then there's also Encourage, which is for family members or friends of those uh, who have same-sex attraction and different aspects of there. We have an Encourage group, uh, support group in the Diocese of Baton Rouge. We, we do not yet have a Courage group, so be praying for the Lord to provide for that. But if you're interested in the Encourage group, then um, email me and I can point you in the right direction. Great. Thank you so much. You are uniquely gifted to um, not only be a wonderful priest, but to be in this particular apostolate and do this in the way in which you speak the truth with clarity and charity and great courage is such a gift for the whole church. It really, really is. And I'm always edified and inspired every time uh, I've heard you speak and, and being around. So it's, uh, it's, it's a great gift. Would you come up here? you mind if we pray for you? Uh, we pray for him in a particular way, just for his continued sanctification, his experience of the power of the grace of the Holy Spirit in his personal life and in the apostolate as well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we just thank you just for the unique and unrepeatable person that you have created Father Bochansky to be. We pray in thanksgiving, Lord, for his faith, for the divine life that you have given him through baptism, for the grace and configuration to Christ, the, the high priest, through his ordination. In the unique way, Lord, he has been formed and gifted just to live his priesthood through this particular apostolate. We pray for protection from any and all attacks, Lord. We pray that you would fill him ever more deeply with the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit, and that he would know the joy, Lord, the joy of knowing you, the joy of deep friendship, and the joy of spiritual fatherhood. And so we ask your blessing upon him through the intercession of St. Joseph and Our Lady as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.